0: Continuing in our study in 2 Kings, and it's getting very interesting, and there's a lot of things that we've learned and and have been learning, but one of the things that is also a theme is the sovereignty of God. And we see the sovereignty of God in his blessing, those who don't deserve it, but because they're his people, they receive his blessing sometimes. And we also see uh God using nations evil evil nations to bring about his purposes, but he's he's sovereign and he allows that he even allows that that wartime and and even at times violence to bring about judgment well, we're going to see some of those things tonight um What we're doing now is we're covering the section of Scripture that we jumped over. And if you're asking, well, why would you jump over Scripture? Well, because the way that the author has written it is he starts with one king and then finishes and goes to another. But sometimes he's still doing the same king. And in the middle of that king, he talks about other kings. And that's exactly what we have. So if you remember... For the last two weeks, we've been talking about Azariah. You'll notice there in the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, 792 to 740. So we've been talking about him for two weeks. But if you notice, on the northern kingdom, Jeroboam II and his son Zechariah are during the time of Azariah. And so we're going to go back and finish those two before we move to Jotham and other kings. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles then to Second Kings chapter 14. Now I know we've been in chapter 15, but verses 23 through 29 are the verses that we skipped over. And then we're still in chapter 15 because verses 8 through 12 of chapter 15, is the reign of Zechariah. So we're going to learn about two northern kings, Jeroboam II, who lives up to the name of Jeroboam, which is not good, and his son Zechariah, which follows in the footsteps of both Jeroboams. And we're going to uh, see some excerpts, very short, brief excerpts of their, their lives. Now, these these two men are not r- spoken of or written of in Second Chronicles, so that was the deal with Azariah. Azariah had a, a lot of verses in Second Chronicles that we had to cover, but here Jeroboam and Zechariah are only in First uh, Second Kings, and not in Second Chronicles. Well, before we begin, and even before we have a word of prayer, let me just go back for review and I like to do this I think it's probably helpful for you, but it's very helpful for me uh all of these different kings and the years that they're in and and whether they're the southern kingdom or the northern kingdom, and then to bring what happened last time into the context of the kings that we're studying now so As I said, we had been talking about Azariah for the last two weeks, 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 26. Now, we had learned that Azariah replaced his father Amaziah, and this was back in chapter 14. And then we learn in chapter 15 that Azariah, and his name also is Uzziah, depending on whether you're looking at Chronicles or Kings, Uzziah. He did right before the Lord. So before we start cheering, what hap- what's going to happen is what has happened numerous times. They start out right, but they don't finish well. And not only did he do what was right before the Lord, but as long as he did right before the Lord, the Lord blessed him and he did a lot of uh, rebuilding, he also built up the military, and he also had some military successes. Well, what happens sometimes because of our sinful nature is he was filled with pride, and that 's the beginning of the downfall. We see the same thing happen to his father Amaziah. if you remember Amaziah had a few little victories and had a swelled head and went after one of the kings, the kings of the northern kingdom and he the, The king of the northern kingdom said, "Uh, I don't think that's a good idea. Why don't you just stay there, live in peace? But he did not. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and Amaziah was taken into captivity for the northern kingdom. Well, eventually he was released, but Azariah uh, is now the king. What did he do? How did he express his pride? Well, maybe not so much militarily, but he, he entered into the holy of holies to burn incense when only the priests can do that. So he thought that he was holy enough to go into the, the tabernacle. Now, some have said that one of the reasons why he may have done this was because the Canaanite kings, they have those titles, that they're both priest and king. Uh, as they serve their false god. Well, there you have it. They serve a false god. Uh, they are false priests, uh, and maybe they're kings, but maybe not good kings. So anyway, some, someone had said that maybe he's trying to copy them, that he could be even the priest. Well, he goes into the holy, uh, the middle section, before, and he doesn't make it into the holy of holies. And as he's going there to burn incense, just before he does... He becomes a leper. God strikes him with leprosy. So the priests were there trying to oppose him. He wouldn't listen. All of a sudden he was struck with leprosy and the priests like got him out of there immediately and so did he get himself out of there and he had leprosy until his death. So that was the second part and the last part of Azariah. In the meantime, we see Jeroboam the second. And his son, Zechariah. And so that's where we're going to pick it up. And we'll pick that up in chapter 14 of Second Kings, beginning in verse 23. But before we do, let's bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it, the truth of the events, but also the spiritual lessons that are there. And Father, one of the things we see is that the kings in First and Second Kings, the majority of them, Lord, are, are showing us what depravity is and are showing us what carnality is and showing us what, what a person does when they don't have the Holy Spirit. And Father, even though that's different with us as believers, it's sad to say that we sometimes give in to the flesh and carnality, and Father, we ask you to help us not do that. We ask you, Father, to teach us these lessons tonight, and even to see your sovereign hand that we know of as your providential hand, the invisible hand of God at times, and we ask you, Father, to teach us from that. And in all of these things, Lord, we ask that you are glorified, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's go to 2 Kings chapter 14. And we want to pick up verses 23 through 29. And this is the section that we skipped over uh, to finish Azariah's life. All right, so it finished talking about Azariah in uh, verses 21 and then verse 22. And then it breaks into to talk about Jeroboam the second. By the way, I don't know who would name their son Jeroboam. That would be like naming your daughter Jezebel or your son Judas. But they named him Jeroboam. And it says in verse 23, in the 15th year of Amaziah, now we're going back a little bit before Azariah, we're going to his father Amaziah, The son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. Now, when we look at this map here uh, and this chart, we see Jeroboam II and the dates that are given for him are 782 to 753. Well, if you do the math, it only looks like it's 30 years. So we understand then that this means that Jeroboam was co-king with his father Jehoash. So this is, even though some people say, well, that's a contradiction. No, it's not. We find this very often where the son will accompany the father, perhaps in training, or because like in Amaziah's case, he was out, of, he was out in, in captivity, but we we believe that there was another 10 years that he was co-regent, if you will. And so it totaled 41 years. We come to verse 24 and we find out that this Jeroboam is living up to the name of Jeroboam. Verse 24 says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebot, which he made Israel sin. Now we've seen this phrase over and over. And so this is a thematic phrase of these kings who do not follow the Lord, but they worship false gods and they bring Israel into idolatry. So it's bad enough that they don't follow the Lord, but... But what really also incurs the wrath of God is that they make all of his people, Israel, follow idolatry in the worship of false gods. Now, he wasn't, I guess if you would say it, he He did do some things that, with success. And we're going to see that with verse 25. Notice verse 25. He is going to restore some of the boundaries That have been lost. So, under Solomon's time and the range that he had of Israel all the way down to Judah, they had lost some of this with some of these wars during some of these kings. Well, he's going to get some of the, the, the boundaries back, as did Azariah. Look at what it says in verse 25. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the sea of the Arabah, which is the Dead Sea. According to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Imittai, the prophet, who was of Gath Hefer. So here is a little bit of success. And so the the boundaries are increased. And this is what they would need. They need to build their military. They need to increase their boundaries and get them back. And so, uh, let me read a, co- a comment and a quote on this. It says, "Even though he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, nevertheless Jeroboam was successful in increasing past boundaries." Jeroboam the second's greatest accomplishment was the restoration of Israel's boundaries to approximately their extent in Solomon's time. Wow. Excluding the territory belonging to Judah. So we're not talking about Judah, but we're talking about the northern part. And the southern boundary was the Sea of Arabah or the Dead Sea. Jeroboam II took Hamath. It was a major city located on the Orontes River, about 160 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So that's where we're at now. We're talking about Israel, and I actually have uh, a map of that. This, this is uh, Hamath here, which is north of the Sea of Galilee, and it would even include Damascus at this point. It says, he also controlled Damascus, indicating that the Transjordan territory south to Moab was also under his authority. These victories of Jeroboam II were accomplished, and this is interesting, so we're talking about Israel, we know they're going to go into captivity with the Assyrians, but God in his providential hand is working things out like a chess piece. It says, these victories of Jeroboam II were accomplished because the Syrians had been weakened by attacks from the Assyrians. While Assyria herself was weak at this time, suffering from threats on her northern border, internal dissension, and a series of weak kings. So we haven't seen the rise, the full rise of Assyria yet. And there's some consequences, and Israel is able to expand its borders through Jeroboam. Now, we're going to see this developed, uh, because it's going to be a blessing from the Lord. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But it's also, I think, setting up judgment. I'm not going to say any more. All right, now, it mentions the prophet Jonah. So, we find out from this passage that Jonah expresses territorial extension. And one writes, the territorial extension of Jeroboam II was in accordance with the will of the Lord as revealed through the prophet Jonah. This was the same Jonah who traveled to Nineveh with God's message of repentance for the Assyrians. And I guess at this time, I just want to say it is really cool for Lou and I to be having these uh, interacting prophets and prophecies and the kings to see all that happen. We're also going to see Hosea and Amos in this at this time. Well, if Jeroboam did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and under the covenantal law, if you do evil, God is not going to bless you. Why did God bless him? Well, first of all, we do know that God is a God of grace, and he does not always give what we deserve. But let's look at the other reason. Look at verse 26, if you will. And here we see the mercy and the compassion of our Lord, even in the midst of evil kings. It says, for the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, For there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. And I'm looking forward to this Sunday because we've been going over and doing a series on David, a man after God's own heart. We took a look this past week at his heartfelt repentance. How could he be a man after God's own heart if he sinned so grievously? Well, he did, but he also repented with his heart as well as his heart that love the Lord. This week we're going to talk about David writing about the attributes of God. He loved God and 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 really David's a theologian. We find many things about God's particular attributes in the book of Psalms. So we're going to take a look at that. But mercy and compassion is one of those attributes that we see there and we see in other scriptures as well. So God You know, we we know God has that covenant. He says, if you don't follow me, I'm going to bring these things upon you. And he will, but he's so merciful and long-suffering in the meantime. He's extended himself over and over for them to repent. And of course, we know the end of the story is that both the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom do not repent. Both of them will go into captivity for a time, for a time. So he sees their affliction. Uh, this would be the affliction from being, you know, going to battle with others and not really having really uh, all that much as far as provisions or even food goes. So God sees their affliction, even though brought upon by themselves, and he intervenes here. He sees the, the, the affliction. And this is a, this is the characteristic of compassion, and I, I, I love to see this in the New Testament with Jesus. So we know that Jesus uh, came to die on the cross. We know that he also came to preach the gospel, and to prove that he was the Messiah, he also did these miracles and healing. So you almost think, well, that's his job description, and yet there were times that he was just walking from one place to another and would see someone uh a mother whose son had died or or somebody uh, stricken and, and and to be pitied, and he would just stop and voluntarily have compassion and heal them. Well, that is a characteristic and an attribute of our God. And here's one of the instances where, you know, he very well could have took Jeroboam out, but he allows Jeroboam to be in, to be <laughs> successful, so that the boundaries could be increased. They could have more areas of agriculture now. They could have the agriculture of these other nations and these other peoples. And so this was a relief. So God did uh, give compassion and mercy here, and it calls the affliction very, very bitter. Um, Notice that phrase where it says, for there was neither bond nor free and one of the commentaries said, this is really a difficult expression in, in the Hebrew. And what it means is that both bond and free were under this affliction. That, that's what, it, it almost seems to say something else in the English. But then I, I love what it says, nor was there any helper for Israel. Now, I, I don't mean to say that I'm glad they didn't have a helper, but I'm, I'm here to say that God... Became their helper. And the word for help or helper in Hebrew is Ezer. Now, this particular Ezer isn't a particular name of God that I'm thinking about, but there is a particular name of God that's called Ebenezer. In fact, we even sing that in some of our hymns. And it means God is our helper, or literally a stone, a rock of help. And we see God becoming this. Very interesting. Yesterday during our Fourth of July uh, celebration and ministry here, we did have devotions, and we were quoting Charles Spurgeon, who called was talking about freedom and abolition, but then said the greatest freedom is the freedom that we have in Christ. And Christ was the great liberator for us when He died on the cross. Well, He is also the great helper. And Yahweh is the great helper in the Old Testament. And so you put these two ideas together, verse 25 and 26, it's God's mercy in giving them more territory to help with their afflictions, their poverty, and those things. Now, look, if you would, at verse 27. And this gets our thinking theologically correct. Whatever we think of Israel, whatever we think of these kings, and we might even think, go get them, God. Give it to them. They deserve it. Well, whatever, whatever that thinking is, look at verse 27. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So that's very interesting. So God said, I'm going to discipline you big time. But he never said, I'm going to completely destroy Israel and they will never be my people. And that's what it means to blot out. David said, blot out my sins as it would be erased from God's book of the deeds that we do blot blot out my sins god well here it's it's a god said well i never said i was going to blot out the people now that doesn't mean that there will be many who die going in captivity and and that kind of thing but but they will not be forsaken and annihilated hence they're still here today uh we know of the jewish community over here in the united states but it's it's something to behold when you go over to Israel and see the Jewish community over there. They are very Jewish and uh, is very much alive. Both the Orthodox Jews are very much alive with the wool black hats, even in the middle of summer, and the curls on the sideburns that they won't shave. And even the little boys uh, about Cooper's age, kind of cute. They'd have that be dressed in black and they'd have the black wool hat and Of course, they didn't have long curls, but they were starting to get the curls on the side. It's very Jewish, obviously. They have not been annihilated. Now, there's a lot to say theologically as to what has happened to Israel, but we know this. If God says, I have not said I'm going to blot you out, do you think he will bring Israel back to his plan and fulfill his word and his prophecies? You know he will. He's a God of faithfulness and a God of covenant. So it doesn't mean that he would annihilate them. Now, this seems to be a little bit of a section of we need to think some things through. And one of them is that in Exodus chapter 32, and I'm going to ask you to turn there. In Exodus chapter 32, verses 9 through 14, we do have an event where God is going to destroy them, or at least that's what he says. And Moses is going to intervene. So let's look at it before I make any comments. So this is while Moses is up there receiving the Ten Commandments, and they're down there worshiping the golden calf. By the way, Jeroboam is named after the man who brought in another golden calf to the northern kingdom. They're still worshiping the golden calf again. And verse 9 of chapter 32 says, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people or stiff-necked people. They, just, they, they hunker down, and they're stubborn. He says, Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. And I will make of you a, a great nation. Let's destroy them. Let's annihilate them. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, "O Lord, why does your anger burn against your people whom you had brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, with evil intent, he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now I'm going to let you in on a little secret. God is sovereign. God knew that he was not going to do this. There could be the emotion of this. We could say that there's a sense in which God did regret, like he created man, as it says in Genesis, yet he is faithful to his covenants. This was to get this response from Moses. So Moses was saying, God, you're a faithful God. You're a loving God. You're a protective God as if God forgot it. Well, he's omniscient and doesn't forget anything. He knows that that's going to happen and he knows that Moses is going to say it and he knows that it's going to be recorded. And it's an idea that lest we forget the attributes of God, let us pray like this in our prayers. Anyway, the point is, just in case someone says, well, He said he was going to destroy them. Well, he said that to provoke a response from Moses. And again, that doesn't mean that there wasn't an emotion there, uh, that he regretted it, but he he was not going to blot them out or annihilate them. And if you notice then, uh, back in verse 27, it says, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So he used, in many cases, he uses an evil king to bring discipline against his people. Here he used an evil king to bless his people. That's a sovereign God. He does whatever he pleases. And whatever he does is right and righteous and never is it immoral. Never. It's always right and always perfect. Now, The interesting thing is, so here's God in his great compassion and mercy, and they will still not repent. They're not going to repent. And it's almost like you almost have the idea. They have no clue what's going on. They probably looked at Jeroboam and thought he was a hero, but he was the king of Israel. And being the king of Israel, everything you do and everything that happens to you is a connection with the Lord. But these people never repented. They did not realize that he he was being merciful and they could have mercy and they could escape captivity, but that's not going to happen. Well, then we pick it up in verse 28, 2 Kings 14, verse 28. And it's going to talk about the acts, the other acts of Jeroboam. And as I've said many, many times, let's read it. It says, Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he fought and how he recovered for Israel Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? This is not the book of Chronicles. This is a royal and a legal document that is being recorded by those who have been appointed in these legal times. One of the main reasons we say that is because if you go to 2 Chronicles, there's nothing in there about Jeroboam or Zechariah, for that matter, and yet the same phrase is used there. And then, verse 29, to conclude this, it says, And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel. So you remember we've made a differentiation now. Actually, the author has. So every one of them dies. Every one of them gets buried. Every one of them gets buried with their fathers, their their, uh, predecessors. But not every one of them gets buried with the kings in a royal burial. Well, he does, which should tell you right there that the standard is not very high in the northern kingdom to get buried with the other kings. Uh, basically, any, everyone gets buried with the other kings in the northern kingdom, not so in the southern kingdom. And then it says, and Zechariah, his son, became the king in his place. And we're going to pick that up in verse 8 of chapter 15. Well, why? Well, because in 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, the author starts to talk about Azariah. And that's why I didn't break it up last time. I kept talking about Azariah. And it says in the 27th year, this is chapter 15, verse 1, in the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. So we continued with that, and we found out about his leprosy, but all king says is, and he was struck with leprosy, and we're left to wonder what happened. Well, Second Chronicles filled us in that he thought he was also the priest, very prideful, went into the tabernacle, the holy place, and was going to make the, uh, the the burning incense there, and he was struck with leprosy. But then, in verse 8, the author brings us back to the northern kingdom. And, and you, this is, this is a, a challenge for the author, and I think, since it's scripture, and I think the author did it well, and I think he did it logical. And, uh, and we do this, if you notice the way that we talk. Oftentimes, uh, you know, we, depending on how much detail we want to give, we're saying, well, then this happened, but, but then this happened over here. Oh, and let me get back to the story. So, so either we, we are very logical with detail, or we just can't stay on topic. But uh, actually, the scriptures do. All right, so let's go to verse eight, and we're going to cover verses eight through twelve, and we're going to talk about Zechariah and these few verses that talk about Jeroboam's son. Now, before we do, I I want to just talk about several of the Zecharias in the Bible because it does become a little confusing, and there's not always total agreement by some of the commentaries, but. The first Zechariah that I'm going to mention, of course, is the one that's the most famous, uh, the one who wrote the book Zechariah. Now, he is distinguished in Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1, as the son of Berechiah. So we're, that's the one good thing about these names, is that we can look at whose son they are, and we could know who they are. So he's not even actually mentioned in 1st in and 2nd Kings. But Jesus mentioned him in Matthew 23, verse 35, when he said, So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous bloodshed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So even Jesus mentioned the prophet who wrote the book. Now, in our study, we came across another Zechariah. He was the son of Jehoiada. Jehoiada was the priest who influenced the king. And after he died, Zechariah was indeed uh, probably a priest, but also received uh, prophetic uh, Um, a prophetic message to give to the king, Joash. Well, what happened? Well, Joash killed him. And it's interesting, it's Jesus who gives us the detail about the prophet Zechariah who wrote the book. But if you're just kind of wondering, there's another Zechariah who also gets killed, and that was in 2 Chronicles 24, if you remember that. And then... There appears to be another Zechariah who who I call the unknown prophet, which is kind of tongue-in-cheek because we know his name is Zechariah. But that's all we know. Now, some people will try to equate him with some of the other Zecharias, but uh, John MacArthur writes, Zechariah, an unknown prophet, this was from 2 Chronicles 26.5, an otherwise unknown prophet during Uzziah's reign... Not the priestly spokesman, that was the son of Jehoiada in uh, 2 Chronicles 24, nor the prophet who wrote the book Zechariah. So uh, at least uh, MacArthur is one of the commentaries that says, no, there's a difference between the prophet and then the priest, Zechariah, and then this prophet. Well, now we're looking, and this isn't all the Zechariahs, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to take the time to go in all the Zecharias. All right. So now we have Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam II, who's going to become the king. And this is where we're going to learn about him, verses 8 through 12. Now let's look at verse 8 then. It says, In the 38th year of Azariah... So we go back here, and this is what's happening. So... uh, Azariah uh, begins around the same time that Jeroboam begins, except Jeroboam becomes the sole king around 782. So we see this, and then we we see that Jeroboam and Zechariah are kings during the time of Azariah. By the way, when we come back, it's going to go bam, 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 short-lived kings. And I mean it, and it's going to start right here. Verse 8 says, in the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in Samaria for six months, not six years, six months. So he is the son of Jeroboam, and we're going to find out that he's going to follow his father Jeroboam and the old Jeroboam, but it's mentioned in Samaria, which is the headquarters, uh, one of the headquarters for the northern kingdom. And uh, this is where Ahab was and where he built his palace. And when we went over to Israel, we were able to go to Samaria. And I showed the pictures in that. Well, he only is going to reign for six months. We're going to find out why. Well, in verse 9, he follows in the footsteps of the Jeroboam's. He did evil in the sight of the Lord as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabot, which he made Israel sin. So it's the same thing. Not only are they sinning by not following the Lord, but they made Israel sin. Uh, It's very interesting when you think of leadership, even leadership of the church, there's a heavy responsibility because as the pastor, as the elders, as the deacons go, so could go the church. But it also would would uh, spill over into the heads of the home. As the leadership goes in the home, so often can be those who are underneath them. And we've learned and seen this principle over and over. Now, I want to just read uh, Constable's word because when it says that he was following after Jeroboam I and including his father Jeroboam II, Constable writes, like all his predecessors in Israel, he continued the worship of the golden calves at Dan, northern part, and Bethel, right by the boundary that Jeroboam I had begun. Now we're going back to Jeroboam again and and imagine, imagine the amount of sin that had been caused by him. Well, we could go back a little further and we could pick on Adam. Imagine all of the sin and the consequences of sin and the, and the punishment of sin by our first two parents and Adam, our representative. But when people do start talking that way, uh, as if it's not their fault, the truth is, well, okay, if you want to start from scratch and be perfect, go ahead. And how's that going, by the way? Not very well. And, and we have to remember, they were perfectly innocent. They had no sin nature originally. Not until they sin and they spread sin and the sin nature to the entire human race. Well, in a way, that's kind of what Jeroboam's doing to the, the kingdom, the northern kingdom. And, and it's being followed by all those who are predecessors. Well, we come to verse 10 and it says, Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, not Jabez, but Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him before the people, and killed him, and reigned in his place. So not much is written about Shalom, mostly because he didn't occupy the throne very long, and he he was killed. He was killed by Shalom here. Now, little is written about Shalom because we're going to find out that Shalom didn't reign very long, one month. In fact, he was... He was a number of months shorter than Zechariah. And we're going to see this here. We're going to see this bloodshed that has come into the northern kingdom in regard to its kings. Now, there's a couple of thoughts on this. First of all, it shows the spiritual decay. The spiritual decay and the social decay among these kings of Israel, the Israel of God. One writes, the openness of Shalom's deed is expressive of Israel's spiritual and social degradation. Uh, Another commentary said that this proves that he, in the six months, probably wasn't liked by the people because they witnessed his killing and they didn't interfere. And that's a possibility. It could also show their spiritual decline and degradation um, and then obviously Shalom isn't all that well-liked either, which we'll find out. Well, then verse 11 is going to tell us about these documents, the royal and legal documents. Now the rest of the Acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. That is a royal and legal document because Second Chronicles does not talk about this Zechariah at this time. But we find an interesting verse conclusion to this in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, your sons to the fourth generation shall shall sit on the throne of Israel. And it was so. So again, we see the sovereignty of God even in fulfilling all of these things. But I want to talk about this for just a moment. I want to talk about this word of the Lord that came to uh, Jehu while he was reigning. In 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 30, so we're going back a little ways. It said, the Lord said to Jehu, so this would have been through the voice of an unknown prophet, because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Now, what did he do? Well, he eradicated the house of Ahab, which was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. But he also did a little bit more than that, that he got into trouble. So he wasn't the the best king, and it almost seemed like he was a... He was just the right king for the job because he was pretty bloodthirsty. Well, we'll we'll see that in a moment. Nevertheless, he did accomplish, and he annihilated the house of Ahab because of all of its sin and and the sin of Jezebel that had happened to the northern kingdom. Now, let's talk a little bit about that bloodshed. We also remember that he not only killed the house of Ahab, but... At the time, anyone who was associated with it, whether they were of the house of Ahab or not. And if you remember, we talked about that there was going to be judgment on him. Now, there's going to be both judgment and blessing. How can God do that? I mean, it should either be judgment or it should be blessing. Well, not if you're a sovereign God. You can give both blessing and judgment. You can not give full blessing and not give full judgment at the same time if you're God. And whatever he does is right. And if you remember, we went to the prophet Hosea, uh, where Lou also went to, and we find out in Hosea chapter 1, verse 4, who was another prophet during this time, and it says in Hosea 1, 4, And the Lord said to him, Name this son Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, not only does this answer, how can you have blessing and judgment, it also answers the question that God is a righteous God. He will give the right blessing to the right action, but he would also give the right judgment to the right sin. And so we see God doing this. It is interesting because even Amos in chapter 7 is going to talk about this bloodshed now, the bloodshed that Hosea talked about. And here Amos says, "...the high places of Isaac will be desolated, and the sanctuaries of Israel laid waste. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword." So we're going to see that sword raised uh, next week when we get in, and it's going to be just one king right after another, rapid fire. And uh, uh, we're, we're really, it's a, it's a quick countdown, if you will, although as, as slow as I go, it's not going to be that quick, but we're a quick countdown to the Assyrian captivity. Well, for application, again, I think of the sovereignty of God. And I think of the sovereignty of God when he was merciful at the affliction of Israel, even though there was an evil king in charge of Israel at that time. So God sometimes allows blessing and prosperity for the sake of meeting the needs of his children. But what about the sin? Well, he will deal with the sin. But he may not deal with the sin right away because he may use this king, Jeroboam, to be able to meet the needs of his people. We see this with some of these other nations, with these, with these kings. You, you see in the book of Jeremiah, I mean, you can hear the drums and you can see the fire being lit and the warning sign. Boom, boom, boom. Here comes the enemy. Here comes uh, Nebuchadnezzar. Here comes the Babylonians. And yet, and yet Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians did some horrific things. And yet they were chosen to discipline Israel. That just doesn't seem fair. Except when you get to the end of the book of Jeremiah where he says, uh, Oh, by the way, Babylon, you're going down. Okay, So God is a fair God in that sense. A righteous God would be better. Uh, and so God can bless in the midst of evil times. And we're going to see that God can judge in the midst of prosperity. But we see the the mercy of of God here. Uh, God is not bound by any law against extending mercy and compassion. In fact, that's what makes it mercy and compassion and grace. So we have the, the Old Testament covenant, Deuteronomy 28. You know, if you... Obey me, you'll prosper. If you disobey me, you'll be cursed. And God did bring that about. But there were times and periods of even though that was the case and going to happen, God was merciful and did not give them what they deserved. Now, if we're thinking going through the book of Kings saying, well, that's just not right. They deserve it. Hold on a second, because we're in the same boat. We deserve what? hell we deserve hell we're just as depraved as those men those kings without the spirit and we have the spirit and and yet we still sin at times but we have received mercy we deserve to go to hell but God extended his mercy and by his grace alone not our merits God didn't look down and say well I think I think you guys are going to be an asset to Christianity. I want you on my team. Uh, that, that's not the case at all. Uh, uh, in fact, you, you sometimes humbly say, Lord, I, your grace is amazing because of, of all the people you could have chosen, you, know, you, you chose us. But it does say that he chose the weak things to confound, confound the strong, and he chose the foolish things to confound the wise. Well, there's another point that I want to make, and so God has given some prosperity now to Israel when they don't deserve it, but follow me. I, I also see that there's, there's a catch-22 with this blessing. Uh, the people are getting relief from their affliction, so that's a win-win, but God sometimes allows blessing and prosperity to bring about judgment even against his own children. So you know now that I'm not talking about health and wealth. that It's all about God and his blessing and what he chooses to do and his sovereignty. Because sometimes blessing and poverty is an open door to judgment. God is always moving all of the pieces to bring about his will. What I'm, What I'm talking about is, even though it brought help and relief to his people, in a few short years, the Assyrians are coming. And guess where they're coming through? Hamath, the very place that was mentioned. In Amos chapter 6, verse 14, it says, For behold, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, declares the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath. To the brook of the Arabah. Now, I also see this in a very practical sense. So, Israel at this time didn't have the biggest army, the largest army, the strongest army. And even though they got relief because they got more territory, now they are spread out a little more and they are spread thinner. And so the Assyrians are going to have no problem coming in from this very entrance to take them into captivity. But again, I I say only God can bless his children and judge his children at the same time. But he is a righteous God and will not give more or less unless he intervenes with his mercy and compassion. And if you remember on Sunday, that is what David called upon. The, The sin of murder, there is no sacrifice you can do. If you are forgiven, it's only because of the mercy of God, your faith in God and, and his uh, down-the-road provision through the Lord Jesus Christ. But the the if, if one murdered, and I don't mean self-defense, if one murdered in violence or whatever or in deceit like with David, the punishment is death. The punishment is death. When David confessed his sin, the Lord said, you will not die. And that Psalm 51 is such a beautiful psalm of probably the most mature repentance we can ever find in the Bible, as well as a description of the man, David, still a man after God's own heart. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we have seen your sovereignty. And Father, thank you, because we always need to be reminded of your sovereignty. Lord, I believe spiritual discernment is dependent upon knowing that you are sovereign in all events, whether there are times of good prosperity or whether there are times of evil, you will bring about your purposes and your plans. And Father, we see also to your, your specific mercy to your people, your people Israel. And Father, we look forward to their restoration. But Father, we too are your people. We have been grafted in We are the infamous Gentiles, but through your mercy, you have even given mercy and compassion and grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And we ask, Lord, we don't want to say, help us not be like Israel, but we want to say, Lord, help us not be like our sinful nature that resides within us. Let us be like Christ through the Holy Spirit, the power of the new nature And Father, we'll give you the power and the glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.